This is The Ethicist, a new podcast from The New York Times Magazine. I'm Amy Bloom, novelist and writer-in-residence at Wesleyan University, and along with my co-hosts, we're going to debate and then answer some of the tricky ethical questions Times Magazine readers send in every week. And let me introduce my co-hosts. Jack Schaefer is a media writer for Politico. Welcome, Jack. I'm ready. And Kenji Yoshino, a law professor at NYU. Hi, Kenji. Hi, Amy. Coming up, we'll tackle reader questions about being compassionate and the upstream problems of daycare and a situation that working women often find themselves in, and I don't mean sexual harassment or uncomfortable shoes. Okay, here's our first question, which involves friends, family, and sex, as some of the best questions do. A man told me he was approached by his best friend's daughter, a minor, who confided that she and her boyfriend had become sexually active. She wanted his opinion on birth control. The man says he'd want to know if it were his daughter, but to tell the parents would violate the girl's trust. What do I tell him? Name withheld, Connecticut. Well, having found myself in this situation more than once, I find myself thinking a couple of things. One is, this is the kind of thing that teenagers do because they are not always as responsible and mindful as we would like them to be. I won't compare them to adults who are also often not that mindful or responsible. But I think the age of the minor has some impact on my answer. But without knowing, I would encourage the letter writer to go back to the girl and strongly encourage her to tell her father or her mother. I'm not sure if the best friend was a man or a woman. And if she were 14 or 15, I would give it a full court press. And that might include suggesting that maybe she's coming to me because she would like her father to know and that I support that path or her mother to know. Is it right to tell the father or the mother if I've been asked in confidence? I don't think so, but I would very much push the minor girl to release me from that. And I guess the other thing is that I think it's kind to talk some more with a young woman and not send her off, you know, with a pamphlet or to get a pamphlet from Planned Parenthood. But I would want to engage her in a couple of conversations about why she chose to come to me rather than any place else. And I think that would be both the kinder thing to do and probably the most helpful thing to do. What about you guys? Well, if you're going to procreate, you must be prepared for your procreations to start having sex long before you want them to start having sex. Yes, but that's how you know that she's a teenager because she didn't do that. And if you're going to have best friends, you must also be ready for your best friend's children to start having sex long before you or their parents might want them to have sex. And so it has always been. But just because a best friend's daughter has informed you that she and her boyfriend are getting frisky doesn't give you automatic cause to intervene in her relationship. Unless she's 14 or 15, but I gather from this question that she's not that minor of a minor. Um, I don't think we can gather that. I have to interrupt. I don't think there's any indication of how young a minor she is. I think if someone is going to pose an ethical question of this quality, they would include that she's 13 or 13 and a half or 14 if she were really a minor minor. A minor can be 17 years old. And so because there's not the emphasis or underscore or italics in her being a minor, I'm going to run off at the assumption that she's 16 or 17 or maybe a few weeks shy of 18. In any event, I would limit interventions to directing her to the most reliable sources of opinion on birth control. 
a doctor, Planned Parenthood, maybe a clergyman may be helpful in her search, uh, in her quest for knowledge. But as long as her boyfriend is also a minor, nothing illegal or necessarily wildly immoral is going on here. And I don't think her question is a sufficient trigger to violate her confidence and go to her father. Kenji, can you riff, can you riff on that? I want you to I want you to pick up your saxophone and riff on that. I'm curious about the fact that both of you have focused on both the fact that she's a minor and then the question of how minor of a minor she is. So that makes all the difference, right, for both of you in the sense that if she weren't a minor, there would be no question about keeping this individual's confidence. I don't think so. I think if if she were 19 and a half. My advice would be the same. I think the 18 is sort of an arbitrary distinction. If she were a 13-year-old with the maturity to to ask right. this question, would you still well, betray the confidence or no? Uh, we can deal with that question next week. I think that if the if the letter writer had said an adolescent, then we could mount up and pursue the question with real vigor. But uh, I reject the council's um, leading question uh, to consider her being an adolescent until we have any evidence um, that she is an adolescent and not just a minor. Those are the only kinds of questions I have. (laughs) Her being 15 or 16 or 17 actually is not the pivotal thing for me. The pivotal thing for me is this is a young person who's troubled by something who comes to an adult to talk about a problem. And I understand that one has no legal obligation to be helpful. But it doesn't seem to me that if we're talking about ethics, that you turn your back on somebody who's come to you to talk about something. And if, you know, Jack's theory, which I also share, might be that she's coming to the letter writer because she would like her parents to know, then I think all the more reason to talk to her about this and encourage her to share it with her parents if she's younger But part of what I want to encourage is also kindness, because it seems to me that that is part of an ethical life, which is to be compassionate and to be kind, as well as to be aware of one's obligations and the limits of those. Yeah, this is one of the places where both of you persuaded me from my initial intuition, because I was agonizing earlier about whether or not the fact that she was a minor would allow the individual to break the confidence and to say, look, you know, I did promise to keep this confidential, but this is a minor, you know, it has, if it were me, I would want to know, et cetera, et cetera. But I have to say that listening to both of you, I, I think that's right, that you have to respect the individual's uh, maturity in coming to you in the first place. Uh, you don't want to chill people from coming to you uh, in the future. And that I'm not sure that Jack would say that that's his goal. Sure, (laughs) that people come to him and ask him tricky ethical questions all Uh, the time. Jack is a Jack is a much bigger softy than he purports to be. I'll I'll will see you in libel court, <laughs> counselor. If, if that if it gets out that I'm a softy, I'm ruined. The girl is in no immediate harm. I mean, if she came to him and said, I don't want my dad to know, but I purchased a handgun and I'm going to blow my brains out unless, I don't know, the Detroit Tigers win win the World Series, don't tell my dad. I think that you can violate the confidence there. But what she's doing is what all healthy, frisky, young male and female nubiles do. They get it on. And I don't think this rises to the threshold that you violate her confidence or intervene in something that's not your business. She's not in direct harm. I I agree with Jack that she's not facing direct harm. I'm puzzled by the idea that talking to her when she comes to talk to you 
is intervention with a capital I. The girl walks in. She sits down. You go, hey, Debbie, how you doing? She said, oh, I'm so glad I can talk to you, Uncle Jack, because I have a problem I'd like to discuss. And unless you throw her out the door at that point, you are already engaged with her. No, no. She's she's bound bound my uh, uh, mouth by saying, you can't tell my dad. I'm going to engage you in a conversation. You can't tell my dad. Now, what 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 are your views about birth control? And as I said at the top of the argument, I said I would limit it to, hey, there are a lot better sources on the effectiveness, the morality. I'm not the one to be asking about birth control. I'm not tossing her out. I might roll her out the door slowly, but I'm, I'm not tossing her off. Out. I'm not turning my back on her. I'm just saying my, my involvement with you and your, your problem today is, is, is limited. It seems like there's convergence, right, among all three of us on the two big points. I mean, one is, do you violate the confidence of the individual? And the answer to that is a resounding no. And then the other one is, do you actually try to help the individual? And the question there is just in a, a matter of degree of to what extent are you going to do that? I think that that's right. I'll sign on to that opinion. <laughs> what, what do you call it? Three pennies up, three heads up? Or in this case, three pills up? Yep. Three pills up for not telling the parent and for engaging with the person who comes to you and being helpful to either a greater or a lesser degree. Our next question deals with problems in the workplace and the price of compassion. I work in a small, family-owned retail furniture store with one other employee, my manager. From time to time, she will bring in either one or both of her children, aged 11 and 13 years. She made it clear to me that the company owner would be quite unhappy if he was aware of this. I have always been in a quandary over this situation for various reasons. The fact that her children are spending a five to eight hour weekend day in a confined back room or upstairs storage area with admonitions to keep quiet and stop fighting doesn't seem fair to the kids. In addition, there have been times that I was unable to access computer equipment as the younger of the two needed to perform school tests or play games. There is also the question of safety as I have had to climb over blanketed children to get to supplies. And of course, there was the time that the young man was forced to assist his mom in moving a heavy stone table against his protests. The table was broken badly in transit and had to be replaced. My excuse for not reporting these unsanctioned visits is that my manager is a single working mom and it is difficult for her. On the other hand, my conscience tells me I should have made the store owner aware of the situation and given him the opportunity to deal with it. It's always the kids, isn't it? <laughs> and if it's not the kids, it's the single mother or the single mother with leukemia. Although none of those people are actually in this store. <laughs> I prefer much, easter, much easier ethical questions about obnoxious uh, managers. But it wouldn't be unethical for you to complain to your boss's boss about your boss's workplace conduct. Uh, millions do it every second. So go ahead. You have my ethical pass to do it. Um, it's all your call. One last question to the letter writer. Are you afraid that you'll get fired if you complain? Self-preservation has its ethical dimension, too. That was actually one of the things that I thought of, Jack, which was that are you afraid that you will get fired if you do complain? And are you afraid that you will get fired if you don't complain and the big boss finds out? The lady who brings in her kids says, I think the big boss would be very unhappy 
if he knew that I was doing this. Now, I don't know if very unhappy means there is actually a policy that I am violating or I just think that he would be very unhappy. Um, I also have to say that it is a drag and a distraction to have somebody's young teenage kids in your back room where you go often to get away from your customers for a couple of minutes. And um, I think even if the letter writer isn't deeply concerned about the welfare of her co-workers' kids, which I can certainly understand, I appreciate that it's kind of a drag for her to have these kids around and to have to tactfully kick off the 13-year-old while his mother is standing there and you need to use the computer to put in an order. It's not the worst thing, but it's certainly not pleasant. But I think it would be ethical maybe for the letter writer to go to her coworker, to single mom, and say, I'm really uncomfortable with the kids coming in, given that you've told me that the big boss would be very unhappy about this. And I don't want either of us to be fired if the big boss founds, finds out. How about if we go in together to the big boss and you say that on occasion you need to bring your kids in and I say that it's okay with me if you bring your kids in when you have to. And then if it goes well, you, single mom, will tell your kids to stay off the work computer when I need it and make every effort to behave themselves beautifully. So that sounds like a great solution, except for that uh, it seems to me that the reason that you wouldn't kick a kid off of your work computer, which seems like a completely reasonable thing to do, would be because you would be afraid that some kind of negative repercussion would come from the boss, i.e. the mother in this case. So, Right, the manager. That is a problem. Yeah, so I'm intuiting that there's some kind of power dynamic going on here where the boss is not going to respond favorably to this. So what's plan B? What's the contingency plan if you go to the manager and you say, look, you know, this isn't working for me. Let's uh, go to the big boss together. What if the single mother manager turns to the letter writer and says, look, like, I'm your boss. This is not my problem. Then what? Well, then it's tough, as you say, because it's not just a coworker; It's a manager. And so, you know, Jack's thought was you could go over the manager's head to the big boss. The letter writer says the big boss would be quite unhappy if he was aware of this. If that means he prohibits kids in the workplace, I don't know that there's a huge problem in going and telling your big boss that your immediate manager is violating company policy or directives or or anything like that. Oh, I don't think there's any problem with that at all. I mean, I think right. we were trying to figure out sort of what's the strategic move, but ethically, absolutely, the letter writer could go to the big boss. You feel that way, Kenji? Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. And I also agree that the more compassionate thing to do is to go to the single mother first. And then if that doesn't work, to go to the big boss. I think what pulls at our heartstrings here, right, is the, again, where you started, Jack, which is that this woman is the boss, is a single mom. And, you know, when the letter writer says this, these kids are in the back room, well, maybe there isn't a better place for them to be, presumably if they could be left with a relative or if they could be left in a better environment, then the single mother would you know, prefer that to bringing them in to work and causing these disruptions. So it's a painful you know, dilemma in that there's a price being paid by the, the boss as well. But I, I think that when it gets down to the work computer and the kids come in during the work computer, that's where generosity starts to endanger the giver, right? So I think that's where I would draw the line in terms of where we started, which is the price of compassion. 
Yeah, the price of compassion and upstream problems. It would be great if there was a better place for a single mom to leave her kids when she goes to work. As I say, I was, I'm, I'm for trying to talk to the person with whom you have the problem first, whenever possible. Agreed. And then I think we all say, right, are you guys both saying maybe you like the idea of talking to her? I don't know if, Jack, if you like the idea of talking to the single mom before you go to the big boss. I think in the interest of harmonic convergence, I can agree. I can sign up for that. <laughs> okay. okay. Talk to the problem person first and then go to the big boss. We think that's ethical. You, yes, guys? Yep. We're just buzzing through these. We are. All right. Back to the ethicist mailbag. And this question brings us back to women and the workplace and a situation many working women have encountered and will continue to encounter. My sister-in-law recently quit her job. She's three months pregnant and actively seeking new employment. She's considering job offers and would potentially start a new job and almost immediately go on maternity leave. Is it ethical to withhold this information from a new employer? Sincerely, name withheld. Kenji, would you mind filling us in a little bit on the legal part of this? Yeah, this is a uh, classic con law territory and, and a discrimination law territory because just to do it as quickly as possible, there was a really famous 1974 case called Geduldig versus Aiello, in which uh, pregnancy discrimination, the Supreme Court held, was not sex discrimination, right, under the Equal Protection Clause, because, it reasoned, although the class of uh, pregnant persons is entirely women, the class of non-pregnant persons is composed of both men and women. And so therefore, because there isn't a perfect one-to-one mapping between the pregnant and the non-pregnant on the one hand and women and men on the other, this is not sex discrimination. Congress got so outraged by this that they uh, enacted the Pregnancy uh, Discrimination Act of 1978 and explicitly as a kind of thumb in the eye to the court said that not only is pregnancy discrimination uh, not permissible uh, for covered workplaces under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but also that pregnancy discrimination is defined as sex discrimination. So they put pregnancy under the definition of uh, sex discrimination rather than spelling it out as a separate category of protection. So that's the legal backdrop, right, which is to say she's perfectly within her rights to do this, uh, but that still leaves open the ethical question of whether or not she is behaving ethically if she knows that she is going to be taking a leave when accepting this job. Yes, or she presumes that she'll be taking a leave, right? She presumes that the pregnancy will go well, which not every pregnancy does, and that she will be at work for six months, and then she will return after a break which in America sometimes is as short as three weeks, depending on your job. You know, and I understand that as the employer, as Jack would say, in the alternate universe in which we have the letter from the employer, I understand that the employer would be very annoyed not to have this information. On the other hand, as the employer, I would also want a wide range of people to reveal to me the many other qualities they have that will prove disruptive to our workplace, and they do not do so in those interviews, and they never will. So I feel that it's legal for her to withhold this information, and I believe that it's ethical for her to do so as well. You know, Amy, what's so interesting about this is that I come to the same conclusion, but for different reasons, and that you were saying, and I agree with you, that there are all these other annoying attributes that people might 
have that they are not disclosing. So why should this have to be disclosed? So this is like many other things that are not disclosed. I want to make a different case, which is to say that the legal principle and the ethical principle here are very closely tied together insofar as the reason that Congress got so wound up about this is that it's impossible to have real sex equality unless we have a Pregnancy Discrimination Act. And so I am supportive of the letter writer's sister-in-law not revealing this information, not because pregnancy is so, so much like other things, but precisely because it's not like other things, that it is something that only women have to deal with. If we want true equality for women in the workplace, we have to allow individuals to have discretion about this because employers will discriminate against them otherwise. I like your answer better. Because it's probably not the case that I can argue that you should never have to reveal your pregnancy because all the other disruptive qualities that other human beings have, they don't have to reveal either. I think yours is the more positive case, which it is, which is it is legal to withhold this information. It is ethical to withhold this information. And given the greater issues about um, employment equality for men and women, it's important to withhold the information. So I'm going with you. Oh, shucks. I bet you say that to all the ethicists. I do, and I'm going to say it to Jack as well. What do you think, Jack, of of where Kenji wound up with this? Well, because it's illegal, um, it sort of moots the whole topic, doesn't Mm -hmm. it? Um, If something is illegal, then it's almost just taken, in this specific case, it's taken it out of the realm of of an ethical quandary. The uh, job applicant has no responsibility to inform her employer of whether she's pregnant or not under the law. So it seems that we can't find an uh, ethical purchase on this question because she has no quandary. She has the full force of the federal government behind her uh, in keeping this uh, absolutely mom and, and to herself. Is that true, Jack, though? Because the employer is certainly uh, legally barred from asking, but she's not Uh, legally barred from volunteering the information. So one could argue that although she doesn't have a legal obligation to do so, she has an ethical obligation to give the employer a heads up that there could be a potential work disruption. Which is the letter writer's concern, the extremely overbearing relative (laughs) who feels that, oh, she has an ethical obligation to share this information. And so part of what I liked about Kenji's argument, which which is not only um, is it legal to withhold this information, but that it is actually ethical to do so as part of a general approach to making it a somewhat more level playing field in terms of employment equality? I think it's probably ethical to withhold a whole host of information pr- from a prospective employer. This among them. This among them. Right. And that, that's what I was trying to say, that there are lots of things that people don't reveal and that they're not ethically required to. So two non-mutually exclusive reasons for the same conclusion. Right. But nevertheless, I think we give, you know, the pregnant sister-in-law our thumbs up. What you're doing is legal and we believe it is ethical and go you and good luck with the pregnancy. And name the baby after one of us, please. Absolutely. Or all three of us. (laughs) (laughs) That's a rough life for a kid. And that's it for The Ethicists. If you'd like to send us your ethical quandary or comment on the show, you can reach us at ethicists at nytimes.com. If you'd like to leave a voicemail question for us to answer on the show, our number is 
1-800-273-7070. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us in iTunes. Our producer is Ann Hepperman, and the music is by the band Broke for Free. For Jack Schaefer and Kenji Yoshino, I'm Amy Bloom. We'll talk to you next week on The Ethicists. <laughs>